morning, church. Our scripture reading today is from John 8, verses 53, or excuse me, 7:53 through 8, 11, and it's on page 1062 of the Pew Bibles. Starts out, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, go from now and sin no more. Lord, we just uh, thank you for your compassion that you show to your people. Lord, we just pray for our pastor that can share and enlighten us more of the scripture, the things that you've put on his heart to share, and just pray that you'd help us to hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I am uh, two for two on uh, fun Mother's Day passages. If you remember last year's Mother's Day passage that we were in is when uh, Rebecca had her son Jacob deceive her husband for the birthright of Esau. So you might be wondering why we are in such an obscure passage. We will get there. Part of the reason is because we're continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And I didn't look at the dates when I scheduled this one out. But I think it is important. I went back and forth on whether or not we should stick with this passage or we should skip it. So many questions come up with this passage. Why can't we just talk about Jesus' mother, Mary, on Mother's Day? But after some consideration, I think it is good. I think God wants us to consider the things that we see in our Bibles this morning. Uh, and especially as mothers, all of us can also be reminded that we can trust our Bibles and that we can trust our Savior. Many of your translations, if not all of them, unless you have an older text like the King James Version, have probably at the beginning of the passage, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapters 7, 53 through 8, 11. So what do we do? But before we go any further, would you pray with me? Paul says in 2 Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, Father, we thank you that we just so happen to be in this section this morning. We thank you that it was not a mistake that we scheduled this day for this purpose to celebrate the moms in our midst. God, we pray that you would help us to glorify you, honor you, and to love each other. You'd speak through my mouth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I alluded to, we have two points this morning. The first point is that you can trust your Bibles. The second point, more importantly, is that we, uh, we learn from the Bible, is you can trust your Savior. So mothers, you need this. We all need this. So first and foremost, we can trust our Bibles. And as John finishes his gospel in chapter 21, verse 25, he says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Our text this morning says that this isn't in the original manuscripts. So was this something that Jesus actually did? Was this an event that took place in the temple? Maybe. Should we even be preaching this passage this morning? Maybe. What we're looking here is what scholars call textual criticism. Where the original document, the original Gospel of John that was written by the Apostle is not in existence today. It's not sitting in a museum. And so textual criticism is the process of attempting to ascertain what the original text of the Scripture said. And those double brackets that you see around the text in your Bibles this morning, a friend of mine, he called them guard dogs. They're the quarantine markers. They're the big yellow sign that says, proceed with cautions, like there's frost heaves ahead. Slow down. If you have an older English translation of the Bible, like the King James Version, it's probably still included. It probably doesn't have the brackets around them. It wasn't until the 19th and 20th centuries when more and more manuscripts of the Bible began to be discovered. And scholars began to see that some of the older manuscripts closer to the original document didn't contain the text you see this morning. With this passage in particular, two of the commentaries that I use frequently don't even spend time explaining what is going on here and interpreting it. And so as we look at textual criticism, it's helpful to know that we get the text of the Bible, the text of Scripture. It's 66 books that compile the Bible that we have today. It's written in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. It's got a little bit of Aramaic as well. And as the books of the Bible were written, they were then messages sent around to other churches, to other people to be shared especially the Gospels, would be taken to vast distances to be shared with other congregations of God's people. It's not convenient to take a document east at the same time as you might take a document west. There's only one of them. It doesn't have email or text messaging, easy ways to copy what is being sent. 
And so as these copies of the Bible began to be made, they were made by scribes. It was a long and tedious process where word by word it was read aloud and then copied by hand. It was copied down on papyrus and animal hides. And as you can imagine, those don't last forever. Many of the manuscripts, the letters were in all caps with no spaces. And so it was easy to mispronounce a word or maybe to say a word twice or combine letters together in a dark room and say some things incorrectly. Like playing the game of telephone, right? You've probably all experienced this in your elementary school years. Circle everybody up in the room and the first person is told that, well, last October or last September, we ate a hot dog at the Red Sox game. And by the time it gets to the last person in the chain, you realize that, well, the girl dressed up like Little Red Riding Hood and had some hot tamale candy on Halloween. Well, we read from Scripture, when we look at Scripture every Sunday from this pulpit, often myself or someone who is reading the Bible will mispronounce a word. They'll stumble with a word here or there. Maybe we would emphasize a word that somebody else would emphasize a little bit differently. It's totally fine to do that. And scribes, they mispronounce words too. Or they would maybe miss a word in their reading. Or they would mix up a pronunciation. Maybe you would hear the word Obama when you meant to say you're going to go to Omaha. Two letters that are different, but convey a different message. Just normal guys reading the scripture, normal guys writing down the Bible, making mistakes like us in 2022. And so we can praise God, though, that even with the textual critical issues in the New Testament, none have significant ramifications for our faith and for our practice. Bart Ehrman, he's a former Christian. He's a New Testament scholar. He's critiquing the Bible, and he says that the Bible has more variations in manuscripts than words in the New Testament. And in some sense, he's right. With thousands of copies that are made, it's easy to have little differences here and there when they are done by hand. But with the thousands of copies, it's easy to have those variants, but the vast majority of the variants are just a mistake of maybe dotting an I or crossing a T. You also see scribes from time to time, they'll write notes in the margins to add clarification or maybe to give a cross-reference of things to help the reader understand what is being read. You probably have written something in your Bible. I've for one, don't like writing in my Bible. I have a pet peeve of that, and I just have some OCD on that. But many of you probably underline things or cross-reference things or write a little note or a reminder of what you are reading. And over time, as the scribes are reading it, sometimes they would actually read the note as well. And those notes become part of what is in the manuscripts. Again, an honest mistake happening. The earliest manuscripts written closest to the original document, they help us to validate what was originally there. We want to ask the guy closest, the first person in the chain of telephone, what truly took place? And there are less comments, less errors, less 
scribal mistakes in the earliest manuscripts, and this is the process of textual criticism. So as an example, if I asked you about the events of Hurricane Irene, many of you would tell me stories. Some of you know it like the back of your hand. You know what you did, when you did it, and who you helped to do it. It's not been that many years. But think about it, in 20 or 30 years, what those stories may sound like. You might not remember all of the details. You might make a mistake, well, maybe it was Joe who was with me when actually it was John who was with me helping to clean out that person's house. It was an honest mistake, right? But imagine like 50 years from now, you're going to have a church that's sitting here and they're going to look at that ridge line and be like, the water was up to that ridge line. It was hurricane, was so bad. Well, archaeologists have found over 6,000 early manuscripts and copies of parts of the Bible. And what they do is they piece these puzzle pieces together and they can see that the original manuscripts and what they look like. And that's why we have these brackets around our text this morning. But you can have confidence because of the process of these scholars and textual critics that what you have in front of you today in your Bibles is true. The piece that we're looking at this morning, though, is probably not Holy Scripture. But you can trust your Bibles, friends. The New Testament is the most reliable, ancient document that the world has ever seen. You can have confidence in your Bible because Jesus had confidence in the Bible, but also because the scholars who are making sure that what you have before you today is true and accurate. And so a famous textual critical uh, passage that you're probably all familiar with happens in Matthew chapter 6, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. You could probably all recite it with me where it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you could go and flip back to Matthew chapter 6, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's not in there. The same thing happened. As the older manuscripts were looked at, that wasn't there. That wasn't in the original text. And so what do we do with our passage this morning? Can I really trust my Bible? You can. There are five reasons why I would give you for why this passage more than likely is not part of God's word. It's not part of Holy Scripture. It is not part of the Bible. Scholars and archaeologists have painstakingly put forth effort. They have spent time to make it clear that you can trust the Bibles that you have in front of you. First, this passage is absent in the earliest manuscripts until the 5th century, 400 years after the Gospel of John was written. It's a long time of the game of telephone. Second, the early church fathers don't mention it. Like me, they would preach sermons. They would write commentaries. They would send notes. And none of this passage is mentioned in any of the church, early church fathers' works. 
Third, the setting is awkward. As you remember, we just finished last week the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booths. Next week actually connects to the Feast of Booths as well, where we talk about Jesus is living water. And next week we will talk about Jesus is the light of the world. And the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles is a festival that celebrated not just water, but also light. And so you have this passage in the middle of it that adds some choppiness to the text. Fourth, the vocabulary here is a bit different. Many of the words in these 12 verses are not found anywhere else in the Gospel of John. You'll see words that John loves to focus on, like the word of love. He uses it over 90 times in his Gospel. For example, God so loved the world. So when there's words that are used from time or very rarely it it adds some questions like you'll probably never hear me say and except in maybe a joking manner that things something was wicked that's not part of my vocabulary coming from california and then fifth and finally the later manuscripts they don't include this text and they also say that when the earlier man or the subsequent manuscripts come that this quest or this text is a bit questionable and so the first point this morning on Mother's Day that you can trust is that you can trust your Bibles. And so what we have in front of us in the Gospel of John, other than this passage, is trustworthy. The scholars, they've done their work. You can trust them, even if this passage is not in Holy Scripture. And so what do we do with this passage? Timothy Miller, a theologian, he wrote an article a while back and it helped me to kind of figure out as I was debating what to do with this passage of how we can approach this as a church. We can't ignore this big chunk of the Bible. You know, those guard dogs, you've seen those brackets there. We've read the text. You, or what are we going to do with it? If you recall when Tyler was here back in John chapter 5 verse 4, he mentioned that that verse was not in the scriptures as well. If you turn back in John chapter 5, the passage isn't even there. John 5 verse 4. And so like you, I cannot ignore what's right in front of us. From time to time, you've probably already seen it this morning. There's a little robin that's got her nest right here and she feeds her chicks. Sometimes in the spring, you'll see the turkeys sitting in the crab apple trees and they'll come through and hopefully not get hit by a car or a train will go by and it will honk jingle bells. These are distractions. And if I'm in my second point of the sermon, transitioning to the third point, you might miss the third point. If you see the cute little birds or the turkeys or the train going by. And so I might need to take some time to reemphasize my point or repeat my point and clarify and acknowledge the distraction, acknowledge the guard dogs as we are calling them. It's also necessary when someone comes up here to preach the Bible that we preach the actual word of God. My role is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to speak authoritatively to it. So long is it's actually God's word. My job is to speak confidently, says, thus saith the Lord, so long as I'm confident in what it says. If I'm not sure what something means, I should be the first person to acknowledge. I don't know. And so the text this morning, it's not in the original context, or it's not in the original, sorry, it's not original to John. 
That's clear. It's traditional for the Roman Catholic Church. The church has even used it in the past to teach. It's a great story, right? It's part of the Gospel of John as we've known it historically. John was an apostle, so he has authority, but the claims need real authority based on facts, and the facts point otherwise. And so one option would be to just skip the text. Let's pick up in John 8, verse 12. You'd still wonder why it was there and why we skipped it, so I have to address it. The second is we can focus our whole Sunday on textual criticism. Maybe you're already bored. Maybe you would be more bored if I continued to go with this. I don't want you to be unsettled. We could do another thing is we could just say it's historical and preach it, but we know that that's not the case. Fourth is we could use it illustratively, connecting it to the rest of Scripture. Because the text has been in the English translations of Scripture for so long, it's been left there for us to wrestle with. We get to decide. We can conclude that it's not part of Scripture, so it should not be used as the basis of building any point of doctrine unless it's confirmed by other parts of Scripture. So that's what we'll do now. You can trust your Bibles. You can trust your Savior. We need other parts of the Bible to help us to put these pieces together, to validate the text this morning, and that's what we will do. And so our text finds it ourselves with Jesus again. He went to the Mount of Olives. He's gone back in the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to him. They've brought this woman to test him. And we've seen Jesus be tested by other people in the Gospels before. They track him down to make sure that he's following their law. And this is reasonable because the Mosaic Law actually talks about adultery. It's punishable by death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Stoning is not prescribed except for one instance in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 6 says they came to test Jesus. If you're familiar with Scripture this morning, you know that Jesus was tested frequently. They test him in Matthew to know who Jesus would say John the Baptist is. They test him again in Matthew 17, whether Jesus will pay taxes or not. The Pharisees love to know if Jesus will break the law. God's law, the Roman law, or most importantly, their laws. Will he condone this adultery or will he not? The Pharisees, they want to control the narrative here. But adultery is not a sin that one does in isolation. Where's the man? Maybe he was a quick runner. He got out of there. Or maybe they let him go so that they could chauvinistically just punish this woman. What the Pharisees often want to do is catch Jesus in something. If he rejects the Mosaic law, well, his credibility is questioned. If he condones this, or if he holds to the Mosaic law, his compassion could be questioned. But Jesus doesn't let them do the leading. Jesus doesn't let them lead like we see as well in the rest of the Gospels either. And this is reasonable because John says in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. We don't need these 12 verses to see this. We see this in verse 17 of chapter 1. 
And Jesus asks in this text, who's without sin? Well, Deuteronomy also says that in chapter 13, verse 9, those who are to bring the accusation should commence the stoning. And so Jesus is quoting this and do this. And so this is reasonable that Jesus could have said this. As well in Deuteronomy 17, 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Jesus shows that the accusers here are disqualified from making the judgment themselves. Again, we see in Matthew chapter 7, judge not, let you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Maybe this was for adultery. Maybe this was for more heinous sins. Or maybe it's for just any sin. James, the brother of Jesus, he says that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. This is reasonable. It validates what we see in the text this morning, but we don't need this text to make that point. And so these folks, they go away. And many in Jesus' ministry go away when he speaks truth. The rich young ruler here goes away when, because he has great wealth. And like we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of John, people are deaf, people are blind, and it's the grace of God to heal them, to give them sight, to give them understanding, and to give us a heart to respond to the Gospel. The good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can trust your Bibles, but you can also trust your Savior. At the end of this passage that we saw this morning, he, Jesus, he goes to her, and he has mercy. And Jesus has mercy all over the Gospels. He has mercy to the adulterous woman who comes to Jesus and cleanses, washes his feet with her tears and her hair. He has mercy on the woman with the flow of blood when she touches his garment in the midst of pain and heartbreak. Jesus has mercy. And he has mercy very frequently as examples for women. And so mothers, it's Mother's Day. You can receive yourselves the mercy that God has for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus asks this woman in the text, says, where is the condemnation? Where are your accusers? And the text says, neither do I accuse you or condemn you from Jesus. And it's a great story, but it's not Holy Scripture. But the rest of Scripture can help us. The rest of the Bible can help us. And I hope you've seen that this morning. And this is reasonable because the legal term for condemnation, a legal term of condemnation is the lawful procedure that has been followed to make this sort of judgment. And there is no basis for judgment here in the text. One of my favorite passages is Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son, 
in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The Bible is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ Jesus believe in Jesus' work on their behalf. And by the power of the Spirit, they believe because it's the work of God. And Jesus calls the woman to sin no more. This is an example of repentance, where you turn away from your sin. It's not just being sorry for your sin. That's contrition. I tell my kids all the time when they're saying they're sorry. Sorry is contrition. Sorry is being sad for getting caught. Repentance is changing and not doing the sinful action anymore. And so the words sin no more are repentance. It's a chant that we as Christians should all proclaim. And the law was meant to drive repentance. The Bible says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance in Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so our text this morning, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, 12 verses, they are not scripture. But you can trust your Bibles. You can respond to scriptures. You can believe your Savior. And we are admonished to not come up with any significant doctrine based on this passage alone, unless it's justified in other parts of scripture. And scripture teaches us what this passage tries to teach us. You can trust your Bibles. You can most importantly trust your Savior and His kindness that will lead you to repentance. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, in his first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church of the Witten, or Wittenberg, the door of the Wittenberg church, he says, when the, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers be that of repentance. And I'll leave you with that on Mother's Day, where Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he calls us to live our lives according to God's word, a life of repentance and trusting his word. And you can take that to the bank because you can trust your Bibles and you can trust your Savior. You can rest in that moms, you can rest in that grandmas, or whatever weird names grandparents have, which we have in our family as well. You can rest in that church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light for their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. 
We can trust our Bibles. We can trust our Savior. That's what mothers need. That's what we all need this Mother's Day. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can take this morning to look at your Bibles that you've entrusted to us in a different light. And there's questions that we need to answer. And God, we thank you that people have gone before us to help us to answer that, that we can trust your word even more. We can love you. We can follow you. God, we thank you for the mercy that we receive in your Son, our Savior. And again, we thank you for the mercy that you have used moms to be a conduit of in our lives who sacrifice so much. But God, we also acknowledge that not every person has a great story with their mom. And so God, we pray that you would comfort them, encourage them, remind them that they can trust you who will always have perfect mercy towards them. God, we thank you that we get to gather, we get to worship, we get to celebrate you and honor the women who've taken the role in our lives as moms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?